From KCRW, this is Here Be Monsters. Nice to meet you, too. Sorry, I had to pull some clothes. So, well, welcome to the F&M. Yeah, thank you. And right now, as you know, we're in 10 and a half Beacon Street, but we also have some space in 14 Beacon Street, which we'll see later. As you can see, we live and work among our collections. So we not only have a large collections of, of books, but um, also painting, sculptures, you know, art, decorative arts, too. Do you mind stairs? No, not at all. Okay. Why do we bind books with leather? It's a traditional material. I mean, it's, a, it's inherently bad material because it, the tanning process is an acidic process. But I think that leather continues to be used for books because it is associated with a high-quality product, you know, something expensive and special. And this is the book that is bound in James Allen's skin. What's this say? Use nitrile gloves when handling. You're wearing nitrile gloves now? Yeah. You, you said that before this you'd only ever handled it once. Uh, yeah, so this is probably my second time handling it. I think when I started here, uh, actually my predecessor, he kept the book in the conservation lab because he wanted to monitor its viewing because um, lots of people wanted to see it. So he kind of kept an eye on it. And um, during that time, he wouldn't even let me touch it. Mm. <laughs> so. You know, just because it's audio, can, can you tell me what, what we're looking at here? So, I mean, it's a small, it's a small volume and um, a leather bound volume and it's quite dirty. And they say it in the catalog entry that it was tanned to look like a gray deer skin, which I don't know. Um, there's some blind tooling around the edge of the covers. And then there is a black leather label uh, and it's stamped in gold. And I, it basically says that this is bound in the skin of Walton. How's, how's your Latin? That's not very good. I, I have a translation here. Oh, okay. Was it, I, d I don't have good Latin pronunciation. It says, hic liber waltonis, was that be cute, cute? Compactus est. Compactus est. So it's quite dirty. Um, and then inside it's a printed text. Why, why was this book written? Oh, 
I think that why was this book I think that that's a that's a question for James Allen <laughs> Here Be Monsters, the podcast about... Bit of spectacle, don't you think? The podcast about... The unknown. Narrative of the life of James Allen, alias George Walton, alias Jonas Pierce alias James H. York, alias Burley Grove the Highwayman, being his deathbed confession to the warden of the Massachusetts State Prison, published 1837 in Boston by Harrington and Company. What follows are several excerpts from this book, lightly edited by me. This book details the many crimes of the man who eventually became the material of the book's cover, an act that was supposedly consensual, though I haven't found any hard documentation of that claim. Regardless, on money and robbery. To carry out successfully well-arranged plans of roguery, capital is as essential as it is when about to engage in any mercantile employment. It was the principal cause of my bad luck. I was, for want of means, necessitated to precipitate myself into measures which were ill-timed and rash, and which resulted, in consequence, unfavorably. on the nature of Alan's first crime. It was October 1824. I stole a bundle of cloth from on board a fishing vessel, was pursued, arrested, and sentenced to six months imprisonment in the county jail of East Cambridge. This was the first time I was ever held in confinement. I was about 15 years of age, and the idea of being in prison operated very painfully on my feelings. I verily believe that had I been discharged after my first week of confinement, I should have been honest and steady ever after. In a short time, however, jail scenes and the society of the depraved and vicious became familiar. On the theft of leather, broadcloth, and buffalo robes. I was informed by a discharged convict that a wagon was on its way from the city to the country, containing a large quantity of dry goods that afforded it a good opportunity to make a raise. Thinking pretty well of the plan, we hired a horse and wagon and drove them to Waltham. But missing the road that the wagon took, we did not fall in with it, and therefore we turned back for our city again. On our way home, We discovered a wagon standing in the middle of the road, the driver of which was some way back, employed in assisting another team out of some difficulty it had gotten into. We examined the contents of the wagon and took out two good buffalo robes and a quantity of leather, in all worth about $70. We passed another wagon, which was near a tavern, and from it we took four pieces of broadcloth and one piece of cotton, and drove to my companion's boarding house, where we deposited our plunder. A man, half-drunk, observed us and inquired what we were doing with these goods, remarking that he believed that they were stolen. And upon this, my friend, who was pretty well in for it, knocked the fellow down. He got up to his feet again and ran towards the residence of Mr. Constable Shute, who lived nearby. 
In the meantime, the occupant of the house and my friend took to their heels and cleared out. Mr. Shute made an appearance, in company with another person. He inquired what I was doing with the goods and received an answer that they were of my own and that I had a store in Charlestown. Mr. Shute left the wagon in charge of two people as keepers and went in to search the house, leaving me outside. In fact, not sure that the goods were stolen, he had not arrested me. While he looked about in the rooms, I went in, put on a cloak and came out, took up a bundle of the cloth and, looking at it, remarked that I was satisfied that the goods were stolen and should carry them down to Mr. Shute's house. Suiting action to word, I immediately jumped into the wagon and drove off. The men in charge thought that I had been sent out by Mr. Shute to convey the goods to his house. I had rowed but a few rods, however, before they discovered their error, and the cry of stop that wagon sounded in my ears. Having a smart horse, I drove rapidly over the Warren Bridge, through Charlestown and across the Milk Row Road to East Cambridge, where I secreted myself and the wagon in a hollow near the rear of a meeting house and remained there till 12 o'clock at midnight. After which, I drove through the city to the house of an acquaintance in South Boston. Don, you are the you're the chief conservator, is that right? That's correct. Can you say? Um, can you just say? You know, I'm I'm Don Wallace. I, I do this at the Boston Athenaeum. Oh, is sure. that right? <laughs> sure. My name is Don Wallace. I'm the chief conservator at the Boston Athenaeum. My job is the uh, long-term preservation of the paper-based materials in the collection. How did you find out about James Allen? From coming here, <laughs> I didn't know about him until I came here. What, what, did, what did people say to you when you came here? Well, I think a lot of people have been used to it being here, so they just kind of call it the skin book. You know, they sort of roll their eyes because, you know, James Allen wanted it to be bound in his, his skin is, is a bit of spectacle, don't you think? Like, right. this guy kind of wanted to, like, what, was, what were his intentions, you know? And, I mean, I bet he never never dreamed that, you know, his book would end up at the Boston Athenaeum. So I don't know. And it's kind of like in some ways he wins. I wouldn't say it makes me angry, but, you know. What was the, what was the origin of this? Um, I think the, the proper word is what, what's the provenance of this book? Uh, well, I think this, it had supposedly come through Fenno's family. Fenno, you said, was, was someone who had at, at some point captured him or, or dueled him or, or something. Walton shot at him and uh, it hit his belt or a button or something so it didn't harm him. Walton thought that he was, that was marvelous or that was so brave of him that he wanted his memoirs bound in his skin and one would be given to Fenno. So we think that it came through Fenno's family. But I think coming as, as a book conservator and a bookbinder, I kind of was curious. So the binder is identified as Peter Lowe. And, and my, my, my question is, is like, did he know about this? Or like, what was he thinking? What was that conversation like? You know, can you bind this, Peter? This, um, and did he know? So there's kind of like a lot of questions. What is the motivation that someone has for saying that they have a book made of human origin? Is it just 
like a macabre interest or is it something else? That's something I can't answer because, I mean, that would be a good question to the librarian who acquired the book in the first place. Why? Why bring this into our collection? But then maybe at that time, those curiosities were more, well, I would, I, curiosities, but I think it's, it, it's, it seems very out of context today. on the attempted robbery of Mr. John Fenno Jr. I observed a market man with a pocketbook, apparently well filled with bank bills. I made an inquiry respecting him and concluded that he would go to Chelsea in the evening where he resided. I returned to Chelsea in the edge of the evening, about the time I presumed the man I was in pursuit of would be on the road home. I secured my horse in a lane, threw my cloak over him to prevent his color from being observed and known, and took a station behind a fence on the Salem Turnpike, about a mile and a half distant from the Chelsea Bridge. Finally, the wagon I was looking for came along, and it contained two men, one of whom was the person that I had seen in the market during the day. I recognized him by his dress. I immediately walked from my position to the wagon, and I seized the reins of the bridle, presented my pistol, and demanded his money or his life. At this moment, the other man, a stranger to me, sprang out of the wagon and ran off, entering the same lane where my horse was tied. I immediately advanced towards the man who remained in the wagon, Mr. John Fenno Jr. And as I neared him, he sprang towards me, seizing me by the shoulders. I stepped back a little bit to give him a chance to reach the ground, which I presumed was his intention. We struggled a short time, and I began to think that he was attempting to hold me, and that his partner was after my horse. As I could not well clear myself of him, I endeavored to fire my pistol near his ear, not intending, however, to kill him, but not much caring whether I shot part of his ear off or not. The pistol discharged rather sooner than I intended, when I had elevated it about as high as his breast. The man appeared some fright and fell, as I thought, on his back. I thought that upon his attacking me, I had a different kind of man to deal with from any that I had previously ever met on the highway. After he fell, I ran to the place where my horse was secured, mounted, and rode back a short distance to ascertain what was the situation of the man I had fired upon. On observing him rise up, I concluded that he was not much injured, and felt, therefore, quite pleased. I began to make preparations to leave the city. I found a vessel bound to the West Indies, and bargained with the captain to make me as a passenger, advanced $25 of my passage money, placed some of my articles on board, and returned to my boarding house on Boltoff Street for the remainder. As the vessel was ready to sail in just a very few minutes, I ran back to the house, began collecting the remaining articles of my property, when several police officers entered the house and secured me without much difficulty. on Alan's sickness and death. At this stage of the narrative, Walton, being subjected to a severe cough and feeling unable to continue with any further dictation of the events of his life, requested that it might be finished by those whose authority he was subjected. Walton's disease could not be checked, and it finally settled with a consumption, which terminated his existence on the 17th of July, 1837. 
Thus closes the history of a man who, in the short period of his existence, was more deep and more bold in his crime than is known to have been the case with any young man of equal age in this part of the country. Born in obscurity, and with but limited education, he possessed a mind which, had it been properly cultivated and disciplined, would have undoubtedly placed him in a higher and far more useful sphere than that lot which he filled during his short journey through this world. So it's peptide mass fingerprinting. That was the test that they did. And can you can you read this actually? Uh, an analysis of binding material from the vi volume tile Hickliber Waltonus Cute Compactus S held in the Boston Athenaeum's collection, purportedly bound in human skin. Analysis of the binding material by peptide mass fingerprinting or. PMF was requested to verify whether it was in fact from a human source. The PMF results indicate the source of the binding material as human and clearly eliminate other common binding materials such as sheep, goat, deer, and cattle. Hmm. I mean, when we were talking on the phone, you said that you were kind of hoping it was going to come back negative, right? Yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of people felt that way because, I mean... We don't, I don't think we want to be known as the place that has a skin book. You know, they go past some of these duck tours and they, that's kind of one of the things they say. Wait, really? Yeah. What do they say? You know, uh, the Boston Athenaeum, I, I'm not sure, you know, like founded in 1807, they have a book bound in human skin. And it's just, you know, it's like, if they only knew the kinds of things that we have here, it's kind of like, this is what you're focusing on. And at the same time, you you do have it, and you have this like mm -hmm. weird human artifact. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm curious, like you wouldn't want it destroyed, would you? Oh no, no. I mean, no. And it's you know, it's not my. It's also not my place to judge it either. You know, it's my job to care for it because that's that's my that's what I do. I just wish that it, you know, the idea of it and the idea of it being here could be shifted. I guess it's kind of like, can't we just leave the binding alone? <laughs> well, I mean, you can't because you're a, you're a leather and glue person, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure if yes. conservators like being called leather and glue people. Yeah, you know? that's, I've never heard that one before, but um, I hope we're a little bit more than that. And it's just weird. One of the things I, I keep finding myself coming back to is like the importance that we imbue upon things through story, yes. you know? And so in the example of this book, like, yes. you know, it, it's quite possible that the stuff in there is very pedestrian. And had there not been that inscription on the front that said, this is bound in, in Walton's skin, mm -hmm. um, I can almost guarantee you that I wouldn't be talking to you right now about this this book. And when do we when do we give remarkable status to unremarkable things like, an old chair or a book. And is that valuable or is that just something tricking our brain into thinking something's more important than it actually is? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think what you said at the end is true about tricking our brains into thinking it's something more than it actually is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Indeed. 
Consider me duped. <laughs> Many thanks to the Boston Athenaeum, who let me interview them about the book that I think they least like talking about. They've informed me that they also have hundreds of thousands of other books with all kinds of non-human bindings, including many original documents from the early chapters of American history. You can find them at bostonathenaeum.org. And over on our website, you can find pictures of James Allen's biography, and we have a link to the copy of the full text. That's at hbmpodcast.com. My name is Jeff Entman, and I produced this episode while traveling through Washington and Idaho, and I'm just about to be in Manitoba, where I'll be doing a free talk at Winnipeg's West End Cultural Center on Sunday, the 31st of March. And I'm also just about to jet off to Denmark, where I'll be performing at Copenhagen's Radio Biograph Festival on April 12th. I'd love to see you there. We have details for both events over on our Twitter, at HBM Podcast. I had editing help from Bethany Denton. Music on this episode came from The Black Spot and Phantom Fauna. Here Be Monsters is distributed by KCRW. Our senior editor there is Nick White. We get additional support for freelance contributions from KCRW's independent producer project. Thanks for listening. More episodes soon. Okay, thanks for sticking around after the credits. I just want to read you one more section that I am calling on the topic of religion and infidel thought. During the early part of his confinement in this prison, Walton professed to being a disbeliever in the existence of a supreme being. He had, however, too much good sense to continue long to cherish such sentiments. Having in early life read much of the infidel sentiments of some of the French writers on the subject of the truths of the Christian religion, and having occasionally attended the infidel meetings of Neeland, his mind was deeply imbued with the poison emanating from those sources. He long entertained the dark notion of the eternal annihilation of the soul after death, and it was not until a few days prior to his decease that brighter and more correct views flashed across his fading vision. All right. Thanks again for listening.